Ellie Porter Trubert is a New Jersey artist who works across a variety of media, including sculpture, installation, audio, and photography. She is driven by a deep connection to nature, concern for the environment, and an interest in non-traditional art spaces. She has developed an ongoing contemplative walking practice that involves the creation of ephemeral, site-specific sculptural works assembled from gathered natural materials. These pieces allude to impermanence, interconnectedness, and attunement. She creates circle meditations during her walks and leaves them for human and more than human others to find. Ultimately, they will be washed or blown away or changed by natural processes. She documents her ephemeral pieces using photography and video and has been exploring the role of those media in the work. In recognition of her positionality, Ellie began a re-gifting practice of returning what she had previously taken in an attempt to undo the damage and potential violence of those actions. Going back in time in a sense, she creates work using materials sourced over many years. The resulting pieces are offered back in apology and in an expression of gratitude. Going forward, in terms of using materials sourced from nature in her work, Ellie is developing and internalizing a process and approach for a walking with practice with the goal of fostering a relationship with the more than human that is healing, consensual, and reciprocal. Hi, Ellie. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin with the question, what places do you call home? Okay, let's see. Well, physically, I am in New Jersey, and I've lived in New Jersey for most of my life, which is not something that I expected to happen. Um, I left college when I was 18. And then after college, I moved to New York and was there for almost 10 years. I lived in Europe and fell in love and married a French man and moved back to New Jersey. So, you know, things don't always turn out the way you expect. So I'm still in New Jersey um, and I call New Jersey home, definitely. As far as places. I think if I could live anywhere, I'd live near the ocean, despite that being a precarious place to live these days. Um, That would be probably my happiest place. Um, So maybe at some point in life, that'll happen. Do you make your way to the ocean a lot from where you are? Um, I try to. mostly Maine and out on Long Island, though we have the ocean closer in New Jersey. I like less populous oceans. Yeah, the ocean feels like a theme in your work. Water feels like a theme in your work. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it was very explicitly for a while in terms of being obviously a part of my work, but it's certainly a part of me. So maybe it comes out even when I'm not working specifically with the water i'm working with land Mm -hmm. i would love to talk about that more i think a really good place to start 
might be, um, where did your journey with art begin all the way back? (laughs) Well, I can't, I don't know when it started. It seems like it's always been a part of my life. I was always encouraged to be creative. My dad was an artist, though he didn't work as an artist, but we always sketched. So on weekends, we'd go out and we'd drive around and look for a place that we thought looked interesting. And we'd just sit in the car and sketch, which was great. So it's always been there. I called myself an artist um, when I was you know, a young child. I almost went to art school out of college, out of high school, but decided not to. So it's really always been a part of my life. And there have been special people in my life that have always encouraged it. My father and then my, his stepmother also was um, an interior decorator. And when we visited, she had all these sample books of fabrics and wallpapers that she would let me have and we would collage out of them and cut them up and have a great time with them. So just also my grandfather was a poet. So he encouraged me as well to write. So wow, I didn't know that. That's beautiful. So was your father, what was his medium? Main medium? Um, Mostly pencil and, and watercolor, I'd say. He was always a colored pencil, yeah, and sometimes pastel. Yeah, he always was sketching, and he'd do little sketches for my mom, and he also would write poems, sort of corny, rhyming poems, but he always presented you with a poem for any major milestone, um, which was great, because I still have them. Um, That's so beautiful. I love that. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, a few years ago, I put together an exhibition of six generations of artists in my family. And, you know, the more I looked at it, the more I realized how many there were, um, including all of my nieces and nephews and kids. So did your dad, was he inspired by the landscape or landscape in general? Very much. It was landscape and um, he had almost majored in architecture. So he also liked sketching buildings and houses and things like that. Um, But primarily, I would say landscape. Mm. I would love to know, what are you working on right now? And how's it going? Um, What am I working on? I'm really, I guess, since the end of last year, I've been thinking a lot about my walking practice and different things and ideas, concepts, thoughts, questions that I'm thinking about and internalizing as part of that practice. So I started, um, I guess last fall, I realized that, you know, for most of my life, I had been collecting things from nature um, in the last few years to make art from them. But, you know, I have boxes of shells from trips to Florida and rocks from Corsica and just just stuff that I took and kept in a box. Um, and I didn't think about taking the act of taking. I didn't think about if it was causing harm. I didn't really think about anything. It's just that I wanted those things. So it occurred to me that that reflected 
on me and my positionality and, you know, a long stemming approach to nature and attitude towards nature. So I have pretty much stopped collecting until I figure out how to do that in a new way. But I've started putting items in what I'm calling my carrier bag for walking with. And those are things that I'm thinking about. They're things like, what is the story of this particular place? Whose land is it? Whose land was it? At what point did it become property as opposed to just land? You know, how do I feel in this place? And how would I feel? Would I feel welcome here if I look differently? Um, if I were a different gender, if I my skin was a different color, if I was differently abled, how would I feel in this place? Thinking a lot about attunement, you know, am I really deeply listening to this place and sensing it and engaged with it? And how have I entered this place? place? Am I entering it with love and gratitude? Or am I just casually, you know, walking down the path? So these are all, uh, there are a lot more. Um, harm, am I, am I causing harm by being here? Am I causing harm by taking anything from my art? You know, removing this shell, is this shell, is there another creature that had planned to use it? Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, and then thinking about reciprocity and, you know, what it means to be in a reciprocal and a consensual relationship with, with nature or with the things and the beings in nature. Mm -hmm. So this is just sort of an ongoing bag of tricks, so to speak, that I'm carrying with me and thinking about a lot right now. And I don't know where it's taking me. Um, it's not an end in itself and, and neither is the walking practice. Mm. That really resonates in somatic experiencing. Attunement is a really important principle in trauma recovery. Where, I guess, where is the word attunement coming from for you? Um, that's interesting. So it's not coming from that place for me, consciously anyway. I started thinking about it also in regards to how I interact with nature and trying to really see and feel and sense. And I think reading Undrowned also influenced my thoughts on that. Last summer, I was really making an effort to to be attuned to nature. And um, I was at the beach in Long Island and I was, it was very early in the morning, like six in the morning. And I was basically facing the sea and I created a piece that said, I see you um, facing the ocean. And I was really focusing on sensing the ocean as a being. And so I made this piece and I photographed it and I spent some time there. And I also did some brief videos. Um, and then I went home and I was looking on my phone 
looking at what I had recorded. And I saw this tiny little thing on the horizon. I was like, what is that? So I opened it up on my computer. And in fact, so while I'm at the beach, you know, thinking I'm so attuned to everything, I didn't notice a giant humpback whale breaching on the horizon. So, and I'm, you know, I'd created this piece that said, I see you, you know, it was just this, it was very funny because the joke was on me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this whale is like, oh no, you don't see me. <laughs> you think you're tuned, but you're not really. The joke is always on us, it seems. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then I thought, okay, I've got a lot of lot, a lot of work to do as far as attunement goes. Thank you for that lesson <laughs> from the whale. In trauma recovery, ultimately, trauma healing, somatic experiencing, attunement is what you're doing. It's this practice of being aware of what we're attuning to, because often traumatized bodies will attune to what is a threat. And so there's this um, beautiful thing happening in your practice where it's this performative practice of attuning to nature as a being as and sentience of more than human realms but that's also healing the body at the same time so Absolutely. yeah yeah have you ever thought of it of your practice as performative or performance only more recently um when i've made work or interacted with people. And in fact, I have one coming up that I'm thinking about where I'm going to be installing images or banners, actually photographs of my circle meditations printed on banners that are going to be one each will be located at three different meditation benches um, that are in a park that has a mindfulness circuit. So for that, people will be invited to join me on a walk. So that'll be a different kind of experience for me. And in in fact, the process of creating the circle meditations is somewhat performative, though I always think of that word relating to having an audience. So I think that's what um, I stumble over, but it still is performative. Yeah. in a certain way, especially because I have a process and I have these items in my bag that I'm carrying with me and trying to incorporate into what I'm doing mm -hmm. and thinking. I've been learning and re-understanding what performance really means through my own thesis work. And thankfully, I have some performance scholars on my thesis committee. And what I'm learning is that performance scholars really study performance as a examination of social um, social normativity. So it's really the study of social ecologies. And I think sometimes as artists, we're, we're nervous about performance because it seems perhaps like self-centered in a way, when it really can be this powerful process of examining social ecology but what you're doing isn't just social you're you're sort of performing 
the attunement of a more embodied relationship with nature. And that would, for me, really fit in the realms of like eco-feminist performance or eco-performance in general. And I think there's a lot of potential there for, yeah, like, why can't the ocean be your audience? Mm -hmm. This is why I wanted to interview you, because this is very aligned with my own practice right now, which is essentially, well, and has been for a long time. I didn't really think of it as art. I didn't feel permission to think of it as art, but uh, involves walking along the Colorado River, dancing (laughs) in the landscape, and there's no other people around, you know? And as a dance artist, I felt like, well, this isn't dance, is it? And so that, um, but I think I'm opening up and we can all open up our awareness of performance to be this more expansive artistic medium. Can we talk about your relationship to mindfulness and where your mindfulness practice began? I guess that goes back to, let's see, the first yoga class I took, which was in the mid 80s. And um, in the early 80s, my brother had a guru in upstate New York. And so I would go up to the ashram and started getting interested in meditation. And for me, not traditional religion, um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. And you know, once I was an adult, I really wasn't involved with it anymore until much later. But I think that was certainly when I started meditating, um, was going up to the ashram. And um, over the years, different practices have come and gone in my life. You know, I've spent a few years connected to a Buddhist sangha more locally but I'm still meditating and seeking, I guess, because certain things seem to fit at certain times, but nothing really has stuck with me for the long haul other than my own practice and continuing to read and learn and um, look for, for teachers. Yeah. It sounds like you have a teacher. The teacher is nature. Uh, perhaps, but then, yeah, it's nice to have really skillful people inspiring, um, inspiring our mindfulness or meditation practice, because that might also open up. I find when I'm practicing meditatively, that's when all the pathways of creativity open up and that helps my art practice Mm. or they're connected seems. Can you talk a little bit about the meaning of the circle in your circle meditations? Sure. I guess I started making circular pieces probably during the pandemic. Uh, I started making mandalas in my studio using various things that I collected on my walks. 
all the things that I'm now re-gifting, I would make them and then photograph them and then dismantle them. They were never, they never stuck around. I only made one once that was semi-permanent and it was in a gallery for a month. Um, But for me, those were really about the process of centering myself and not so much the visual, though that was important because I would take them apart and redo them until I got them the way I wanted them to look. But I'd say the process was as important as the result. So from making these mandalas, I started making more circular work. I did a whole series of uh, cyanotypes that were based on circular forms, Um, again, using objects, specifically uh, quartz uh, stones that I'd found on the beach that I found that the light actually passes through. So they create a really beautiful image on a cyanotype. And uh, from there, I started making these, what I'm doing now, these circle meditations on my walks. And a couple of years ago, I thought I was quote unquote done with making circles. (laughs) And um, someone asked me once when I would be done with making circles. And I decided that I might never be done making circles. It's just a compelling form and a compelling process for me. And it's rich in symbolism. I mean, the obvious symbolism is wholeness and oneness and, and unity. But I've also lately been thinking about portals and voids and negative space as well as positive space. So I'm still making the circle. And I feel like as well as the walking practice, the circle making practice is also leading me somewhere and i don't know where but it's not done um i made one in philadelphia i was recently challenged to make an urban circle you know someone in my review had said well what if you did this in an urban setting you know you do these all in nature and i thought huh that would kind of flip the whole thing about why i do it in a way as far as my own needs and my own healing and also wanting to heal nature, what would it be like uh, to do this in an urban setting? And it was a very different experience and it was intriguing. And I'm planning on going back and doing more of them in the same location. But we were talking about audience and, you know, I think about audience for art a lot because of my background working in traditional art settings. And so I'm fine with having a non-human audience. I almost feel more comfortable with a non-human audience. Um, But in this setting, there were tents where um, unhoused people were living. There were people fishing. It was on this abandoned pier. And there was a lot of activity. So it was uncomfortable but in an interesting way so i want to explore that a little further and i made the pieces rather than placing them in a natural setting where that i was drawn to for whatever reason i made the one piece around a hole in the pier and the pier is filled with these holes so it was 
it's just different in terms of encircling an existing void in a way. So that's something new and different. Yeah, that that feels really exciting to me. Um, and what I'm thinking about James Brittle's book, which I'm reading right now, um, Ways of Being. I think you would really enjoy that book. He's talking about how technology is part of our ecology, like part of the web of thought. Um, and but he's putting that in context with a lot of ecological systems, and it's really well done. Mm. He talks about consciousness as something we're participating in. And we tend to center consciousness when unconsciousness is actually equally as important, right? Like we consume dead plant matter as medicine. We need to go unconscious to be conscious. So that feels like what you're exploring there a little bit. And that's really exciting. And there's a lot of psychological and spiritual philosophy happening. And then I'm also wondering about ruderal aesthetics, but that that is a really exciting place to work in an urban environment. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I've been thinking about ruderal aesthetics as well lately. Yeah. Um, and there are other piers next to this one that are completely covered with plants. So I don't know what they are, how they got there, um, because I don't think there would be land. I mean, they they're they look like they're on pier shaped, you know, structures out in the water. So yeah. Uh, what are they doing there? <laughs> what are they doing there? And who who are they? <laughs> who are they? <laughs> I love it. More to explore. Mm -hmm. Who inspires you? Is there an artist you're really inspired by right now? Yeah, there are a lot of artists I'm inspired by. I think mostly right now I'm inspired by reading. The readings are not necessarily by visual artists. I just read something that really blew me away by a group called The Walking Lab. Let me just see if I have it. I'm going to tell you what it is. Walking Methodologies in a More Than Human World, Walking Lab. Mm. So, you know, every couple months I read something that is mind blowing. And that was the book of the month, the book of. November was Undrowned by Alexis Pauline Gums. And I know you read that because you posted something about that. Changing the way I think about things, everything. But the walking lab is all about basically decolonizing walking. Yes. You know, and and who walks and how we walk and where we walk. And it's just a fascinating way to look at walking from a completely different perspective for for me and most people probably yeah i'd like your advice uh or thoughts on something because i live obviously in colorado in the mountains mm. where um there is a culture of hiking <laughs> and a lot of the audience that listens to this thus far is my community here 
And I think it's a very new idea, novel idea to be thinking about how we're walking, how we're hiking, how we're trekking. The overall mindset um, here is a mindset of domination. It really is. It's like, how can I push my body really far? How can I get to the top? So from your practice and all this embodied experience, what are some things you might invite hikers to consider about how they walk? And not to say that people who hike aren't already very mindful and caring about their ecosystems. I I believe that they are. But yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's, you know, it's all about endurance and the body and the challenge and, you know, the the trail as more of a sporting event than being in nature, though that's certainly part of it. And you said conquering or <laughs> dominating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and and that's kind of how I saw what I was doing, even though it wasn't about sports or endurance or fitness it was just a walk but the fact that i was taking things um to me reflected that whole you know eurocentric approach to nature which is control it dominate it you know form it remove it whatever so i've been thinking about this because i'm going to be doing this walk um related to my installations in the park and you know, thinking about what could each section of the walk be like, that would be a different way of walking. I mean, I'd love it if one section could be barefoot. I don't know if that's practical, but one section could be silent. One section, you know, you know, maybe one of these items in my carrier bag would be given to someone to, to think about as they're walking. I don't know. There are a lot of different ways to walk in different, differently. You can walk backwards. <laughs> um, you can walk blindfolded. <laughs> it wouldn't work for your the hiking friends. Even if it's just to focus on one sense rather than sight. I don't know. I'd give them an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> a prompt. It's, it's un- yes, unrelated to uh, what they're accomplishing. Right, a point of concentration. Right. The shift what we're thinking about while we're walking, or yeah, just to open up new neural pathways in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I and love just that. to open up the mind to the possibility of a different way of being or walking or experiencing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Which is kind of what artists do in a way. Artists, I think, just speaking to the audience for this podcast really isn't an art, a fine artist kind of audience. So, like, which is exciting in a way. I think artists can open up all the pathways as to how to think about something, even as as simple as walking or something we take for granted, like walking. Um, So I could see an audience for this work being a non-artist audience 
Um, and in particular, I could see like a book or a deck of cards or some kind of prompt prompt resource for people mm-hmm. walking. Yeah, I like the the prompt idea or the cards. I've been thinking about a book. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about when you were talking when we were we did the cloud walk in Mexico and um Dona Lorena was com- before we entered the forest there was so much preparation in a way um maybe an hour of ritual and acknowledging and honoring and all before we went on the walk um but one thing that she said that really stuck with me that you know i want to share with people also is the idea of when we're entering the forest or we're entering the woods or the hike it's as if we're entering the home of a friend and we enter that home with great care and respect and it's not our home so we want to be cognizant of that and the other thing she talked about was making an offering of the hike Mm. right um like the hike is our offering Mm -hmm. which i really loved Mm -hmm. but just the just that stopping before starting and thinking about i am entering now Mm -hmm. this space and you know what is what am i deciding how am i deciding to be and to enter Mm-hmm. And something that's that came up in the beginning was this question of like, am I harming? Like, am I harmful? And obviously, humans have been harmful. At the same time, is it possible that by engaging in a healing process, whatever that may be, Um, but especially embodied in nature. I think of our body really as this landscape itself that's mirroring the trauma of our land and of our, our planet. And is it possible that by doing that healing process with ourselves intimately that we are contributing even on an energetic or conscious consciousness plane um is it possible that that is also healing the planet if we really believe we're interconnected you know to get really psychedelic and metaphysical is that a possibility um i don't know but i believe that it is definitely and you know that's something i think a lot about because nature has had such a role in my own healing and you know, not that you're ever healed. Um, but I feel like I also now feel like my role is in healing nature. And maybe I can heal nature by my approach and my interactions and by creating these offerings that that come from a place of really gratitude and love. Those are things that heal mm-hmm. gratitude and love. So I hope that you know, these small gestures 
do have a healing impact in some way. Mm -hmm. Small gestures are big acts, cosmic acts. Right. It can be. Yeah, it seems trite to say, but um, my partner and I have this ongoing joke when we go for walks together that when you're walking on the path or the sidewalk, everyone has a dog here. And <laughs> so all you see is the shit on the sidewalk or the right. um, the fact that that person didn't clean up their dog poop, but then all this other space is open and it's so easy for the mind to focus on the negative or what's missing or what's wrong, which is, it's true that there's a lot that isn't going well. At the same time, there's all this other, it's kind of what you're talking about, a negative and positive space, um, but in a different way. And I, obviously we all know what it's like to be in a space with someone who can't do anything but focus on the negative versus being in a space with someone who really has a healing and positive outlook on life. And you're one of those people. For me, I feel that in the small times we've had together, I am very drawn to your um, mindful presence. Oh, thank you. And yeah, your practice is such a beautiful, inspiring. Um, example of an embodied somatic practice, artistic practice to me. One thing I did want to just talk about, we've already been talking about it, but maybe not directly is like processing ecological or personal grief. Like there's these new terms, right? And our psychological awareness of ecological grief or climate anxiety. I'm wondering if anxiety and grief and loss have played a role in the development of your practice? And if you're open to sharing a little about that. Yeah, definitely. This particular practice really started by, you know, going through a lot of a, a big crisis moment with one of our kids. And it wasn't a moment, it was an ongoing experience. And, you know, kind of escaping it and processing it in nature, um, which led to creating work from natural materials, which is not something I ever did before um, at all. I mean, my background was in photography and, you know, I had done ceramics and a few other things, but I never made sculpture out of found uh, found natural objects, but that's what happened. Um, and the sculptures directly referenced the experiences and the sources of grief and trauma. Um, so, yes, um, as far as climate anxiety, that really, I think, entered more recently into my work um, in terms of creating pieces that I hope will heal nature. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, there's a lot of anxiety in there's, you know, the shit on the sidewalk. There's, there's so much, um, you know, there's climate, there's what's happening to women. There's what's happening to people of color. There's what's happening to trans people. Um, there's gun violence. I mean, 
these are all the big piles of shit, you know, on our walk. And, um, you know, I, if I'm walking with someone, I kind of try to steer them away from those topics. Um, I try to keep them out of the walk Mm -hmm. because they're so present everywhere else that I am. And, um, they really weigh heavily on me. And it's, you know, it's like, how do you pick one that's, you know, is it systemic racism or is it the climate crisis? Like, which is more important right now? Or is it, you know, what, how do you deal with all of it? Um, so I deal with it by <laughs> making little circular meditations <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> And that works for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mostly, you know, not always, certainly. But it's kind of like a holding, holding everything, right? Like holding, holding it all uh, in your awareness. And then directing the awareness towards healing. Right. And sometimes there is, you know, a real need to, you know, get out there Mm -hmm. and make things yeah for a non-human audience (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yesterday I was practicing um there's this spot I practice on the Colorado River and it was morning I tried to get out by sunrise it's kind of far away and I do have to drive to this particular place I tried to get out at sunrise didn't quite make it but by the time I got there, there was a deer drinking water. There was a baby otter swimming mm. and there was a bald eagle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> and the moon was still up. And I was like, there's so much. Here's an, here's an, it's not even an audience. Like here's, here's some folks to dance with. Here's, right. some, here's some beings to dance with. Yes. Um, when you're in it, you know, you don't even question the the value of of the practice. Um, and it just set my whole day in a different in a different direction. I don't know why I highlighted this, you know, am I harmful? Like is the way I am engaging with my life, with my practice harmful? And it's obviously your way of engaging is is not very harmful so right i mean i hope it isn't yeah um and i fear that it has been in the past Mm -hmm. um and it's you know these are just things that i really want to absorb and think about Mm -hmm. even if it's a subtle thing like in the past i'd grab a container and you know scoop up sand and you know fill another bag with rocks and you know there may well be a reason that things are the way they are in nature yeah and do i think that i caused harm by taking the sand no not necessarily but it's more the attitude that i brought to it as far as I'm just going to come in here. I'm going to take all this stuff and make art out of it. Right. A harmful thought echoes. 
Well, yeah. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This has been amazing. <laughs> and I'm really inspired and touched by your work. Oh, thank um, you. The last question is, you know, what sage wisdom would you give your younger self and maybe future generations or the young people who are going to pave the way forward? Probably, you know, I always been a perfectionist and never wanted to get it wrong. So wherever that comes from, many places, um, you know, that that meant often not making a mistake, which meant not opening my mouth to say anything or try something or take that what felt like a risk because I didn't want to get it wrong. So I would encourage my younger self to make mistakes, even if it's embarrassing or upsetting. Mm -hmm. It is the fastest way to learn. Um, (laughs) I also was always, always held back. Like I was very shy, so I didn't want to participate or I didn't want the spotlight on me. You know, I knew the answers, but I didn't want to share them because even positive attention was uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I think that is really good advice for young folks. Be as true to yourself as you can be because Mm. life is short and um, (laughs) there really isn't anything to lose by, you know, being yourself. And that's something that took me a long time to, to come to. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, to know who our self is in the context of all the information we're taking in all the time. We're so externally stimulated to know who you are requires a lot of internal um, interoception and time and space and we don't even really have time and space so yeah 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 and you know be yourself sounds so hokey and that's not really what I meant but more you know sharing who you are with people you know not hiding it but you know letting it out and again that that can feel risky too I think this resonates for me, because I work with youth mostly, or I've spent the past 15 years working with young women as a dance teacher. Mm. And yeah, I think these messages are the most, the most critical. And it's, yeah, it's not about be who you are per se, like you're saying, or um, be yourself. It's about share what you feel right now. Like, where are you right now? What is going on right now? And um, also what comes up is as educators or space holders, like creating a mistakes allowed environment for people to, yeah, not be ostracized, I suppose, if they make a mistake or people feel that there's a safe 
a safe container for being imperfect. Um, that feels really hard for youth right now, from what I understand. Because social media will have us, you know, project a perfected image of ourselves. And so anything outside of that. Yeah, it's a tough time to be a, a kiddo. Yeah. And in some situations, it might not be safe to share what yep. you're feeling or thinking or right. how you're identifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This has been amazing. I usually try to stick to the time frame, but if there's anything else on your mind, please feel free to share. There isn't, but thank you for asking me to do this. And thank you for a great conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. You are very eloquent. You should do <laughs> as many podcast interviews as you are offered. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are going to be so many. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Okay. Thanks, Allie. Oh, thank you, Morgan.